It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome. Memorial Day weekend. Used to be called Decoration Day weekend. By the way, um, just to reset, set it up. You can listen to us on Fox Business Network, FBN, every day during the week, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join us. And if you can't get there at 4 o'clock, for heaven's sakes, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And here on radio on Saturdays, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear us all over the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And it is Memorial Day weekend. And I know it's uh, lovely to have a day off. I'm actually getting two days off. I took one yesterday, and of course, like everybody, we'll have Monday off, and we will celebrate with parades and barbecues and whatnot. But I want to put a little soberer tilt on this because it's actually a very, very important day, and it's a big part of our heritage, what makes the United States of America the greatest country in the world. Probably the greatest country, not probably, I take that out, the greatest country in the history of history, freedom, democracy, strength, leadership, character, principle, Memorial Day is to honor all, <clears throat> all military members who gave the ultimate sacrifice, who died while serving in U.S. forces. All military members who died while serving in U.S. forces. Very important. Very, very important. Now, we'll have Veterans Day later in the year. And that would be for all people who served veterans of foreign wars. But uh, Decoration Day, Memorial Day, is for those who made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives while serving in the American military. It was originally begun right after the Civil War. There were a lot of local observances for soldiers, who had kind of neglected grave sites. And uh, the first, I don't know, there's a debate about what was the first, but the first the first celebration could have been in uh, uh, Charlotte, South Carolina, May 1st, 1865, in Charlotte, South Carolina. Could be. Anyway, as the history goes, General John N. Logan, who was the commander-in-chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, the first recorded celebration, May 30th, 1868, General Logan. And uh, tradition, tradition, as you may know, is to put flowers, place flowers on veterans' graves. Flowers. And uh, you see that in the beautiful ceremony 
in the Arlington National Seminary. I think some of it will probably be played on television. Uh, General U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, one of my great heroes, President Grant, he presided over the first really large organized observance of Memorial Day. It's about 5,000 people, as the history goes, at the Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia on May 30th, 1873. May 30th, 1873 was the first really large-scale national kind of observance. And um, there was an act of Congress in 1971 that actually made it a national uh, holiday and uh, and kept it at the last... Uh, the last weekend in the month of May. And again, it was originally, it originally came out of the Civil War, some 600,000 people died during that horrible war, but it evolved, of course, into World War One and World War Two and Vietnam and Korea and Iraq in Afghanistan, and the way the thing is defined, it's really anybody who gave their their life serving in our armed forces to keep us free, to keep us free. And that's one of the things that I just want to emphasize briefly. I mean, we have a lot to talk about today, current events, politics, the economy, and so forth. But it is a day of reflection about the ultimate sacrifice that people gave their lives in our military service. It should be a day of gratitude, a prayer, remembering what it took, what it took to make America so special. Exceptionalism, American exceptionalism. Ronald Reagan was customarily wont to talk about American exceptionalism. I think we forget that today. At least some people forget that today. And unfortunately, we have some bad actors in our society that don't believe in it. Just outright do not believe in it. People on the far, far, far left would love to bring this country down by overturning our freedoms, our democracy, our free market capitalism, our families, our religion. Terrible what's going on on the far, far left today. Do not understand American exceptionalism. Do not understand democracy, democratic values, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, Stuff we read, I mean, I was reading or listening to on uh, Fox Radio, I was doing some errands yesterday and listening, uh, I think it was my pal John Roberts doing an interview with somebody, how debating contests, high school debating contests, as I recall. You're not allowed to debate freedom. You're not allowed to debate democracy. You're not about to, uh, allowed to debate capitalism. 
I mean, crazy stuff, free markets, crazy, crazy stuff. And that kind of attitude, of course, is the exact opposite of what we celebrate Monday officially, but this whole weekend, really the beginning of summer. What is it that makes America so great? It is our freedom. And it is the incredible courage and bravery of millions of Americans who served in our armed forces to fight in defense of that freedom and its values and its influence at home and abroad. And so many of them tragically made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives in support of those universal principles that make America so great. If you're going to a barbecue or going to a party or having a family gathering, it's a lovely weekend. might not be a bad idea. In fact, it would be a very good idea indeed to just think and reflect for a moment through all those wars, lives lost. What were we doing? We were fighting for our freedom. Fighting for our freedom. That has made this country so great. They were and are patriots. Patriots who made the ultimate sacrifice to defend America, the greatest country in the history of history. Let us not forget those patriots this weekend. Let us not forget those great men and women who made America free and great. And God bless them. May God watch over them wherever they may be. If we lose that, we lose everything. And that is why we must never lose those thoughts or those principles or on Memorial Day here in the United States of America, those memories and remembrances. What is it that we're doing at the National Cemetery or in your hometown or in your local parade? That is what we are celebrating, the greatness of America. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after this message. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Telling stories, reporting the news, bringing common sense opinion. Red Apple Audio Networks, stories that shape our world. They're still negotiating. They were negotiating, I'm told, up till 3 a.m. this morning, and uh, they've come back at 8 a.m. There's a lot of issues. Uh, energy permitting hasn't been fixed yet. Work requirements haven't been fixed yet. The uh, spending cuts are being watered down a bit. I mean, I give Kevin McCarthy a lot of credit for fighting like hell. He wants next year's spending to be less than this year's spending. This year's spending, by the way, is quite substantial. You probably run about a $2 trillion deficit this year, no matter what Joe Biden says. That's what the numbers are saying, all of his blarney. Uh, notwithstanding. I don't know. They'll probably raise the debt ceiling by two years, not one. 
the deal won't be a 10-year deal. It'll be a two-year deal. But in a sense, it doesn't matter because you're going to get a budget resolution and you're going to get budget reconciliation uh, later this year. September 30th, the fiscal year ends. You're supposed to have all that wrapped up. That, in many ways, will supersede this deal. So it's some of its symbolism. Uh, I think they're going to try to have the appropriators, uh, 12 appropriation bills will conform to the spending caps, whatever those caps wind up being. But we'll see how all that. It's not going to change anything. Janet Yellen has already moved the date the so-called X date from June 1st to June 5th or June 6th. If they get decent corporate tax revenues come June 15th, they could probably run this through the end of July. They won't. They'll probably get a deal next week. Um, We'll see if it can pass. Uh, We're going to talk to Newt Gingrich at the half hour. We're going to talk about his latest book, which goes through some very instructive history of uh, his negotiations with Bill Clinton 25 years ago and uh, the beginning of work requirements and some other things that may relate to all this. But I just want to say that uh, I interviewed Kevin McCarthy on the TV show this past week, and, you know, he was very strong. I mean, basically he's got – he's trying so hard uh, not only to curb spending, which would make the Federal Reserve job easier, wouldn't have to raise rates so much – but also some important supply-side reforms. I mean, the work requirements would get so many people back into the workforce, able-bodied people, no kids up to age 55. I mean, that's something we should be doing. There could be four or five million people out there that could be going back to work as productive people, climbing the ladder of opportunity. I don't know how the work requirements are going to do. McCarthy's fighting for it. He knows this is a pro-growth bill. He knows it's an anti-inflation bill. That's what the House originally passed. He's run circles around uh, Joe Biden, but uh, Democrats, of course, don't want to cut spending. And uh, they're doing everything they can in a rear guard action to prevent the House Republicans uh, from running this thing and from overcoming this thing. So we'll have to see how that plays out. I want to raise one thing. It's a little bit technical, but the Supreme Court ruled 9 nothing against the EPA a couple days ago. That's a really big thing. It's about, you know, little puddles on your land to prevent you from building a business or even building a house. But it's this old story how these unelected bureaucrats, uh, they're like regulatory socialists, central planners. They want to run the country. Uh, you see it much more with respect to climate change, where they basically won't let you, you know, they won't let you have appliances, microwaves, shower heads, toilet bowls, <laughs> gas-powered cars, diesel-powered trucks, uh, crazy stuff. But on the water, big water bill, uh, the Supreme Court overturned the EPA, and that's a huge plus. Uh, rolling back the power. And you're going to see a lot of these things that the EPA is trying to do will be uh, rules that they're trying in the name of climate change, which won't have any impact on climate change whatsoever globally, because, of course, China won't play ball as well as other countries. But um, uh, a lot of these regulations will be overturned in the courts. And this is a very pro-business Supreme Court uh, it understands 
that there are three branches of government and the EPA, unelected bureaucrats, cannot run this country. If Congress wants to pass a law banning natural gas or banning gas-powered stoves or banning gasoline-powered cars, then let them pass a law. But the EPA just can't make some sort of executive regulation. And, in fact, the whole Biden attack on business, not just uh, fossil fuel energy, but business in general, the whole Biden attack on business, which has damaged the economy, and the economy is barely growing, the recession threat is rising, uh, inflation remains around 5%. I mean, that's better than 9%, but it's still two and a half times the Fed's 2% target. The point is, uh, what Biden has done to the economy that Trump gave him is in part done by uh, what Steve Forbes calls modern socialism through the regulatory state. And the Supreme Court, in this water law, knocked down another EPA decision. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Very good thing. And we will talk about the economy later in the show. Uh, the latest numbers coming out are very soft, very sloppy. As I said, inflation remains sticky. Corporate profits are falling. And um, the outlook here uh, is not good. And then finally, you had um, presidential politics. Uh, Ron DeSantis throwing his hat into the ring officially. Governor DeSantis of Florida is a smart guy. He's a conservative. His uh, Twitter uh, feed went down. That whole thing was kind of a fiasco. Uh, he had a very good uh, interview on Fox News, uh, Trey Gowdy, where he went through his uh, Mr. DeSantis' um, policy principles, but he doesn't have an economic agenda yet. He doesn't have a clear pro-growth economic prosperity agenda. That's what he's lacking, and he's got to come up with one if he's going to truly challenge Trump in the primaries or defeat Biden in the general. He must have an economic agenda. So far, he's more woke, and the woke stuff is important, don't get me wrong, uh, what these leftists are doing, so-called cultural Marxism, is utterly insane. But eco e economic growth, economic prosperity, higher real wages for working folks, middle-class families, that's the key. Kitchen table stuff, pocketbook stuff. And uh, Governor DeSantis is a smart guy, but I would say Trump has a much stronger message and Trump had, um, you know, proven track record of achievement on that. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about all this uh, over the course of the show. But most important, happy Memorial Day. Please remember the men and women who gave their lives to support American freedom and democracy, to make us the greatest nation in the history of history. I'm Kudlow. Newt Gingrich will be up next. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are um, having uh, APB Bolton for Newt Gingrich. Uh, we'll get him in just a moment or two, uh, hopefully. Remember, Newt Gingrich is an interesting former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor. He's got a new book out uh, called The American Majority, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. Uh, that was back in the mid-90s, a very successful revolution, I might add. And I'm quite interested in how he handled Bill Clinton in those days. 
relative to how Kevin McCarthy is handling uh, Joe Biden. But, I, you know, one of the key points right now, I want to just go back, circle back on this debt ceiling business because what really matters here, and it's uh, partly a budget issue, but more broadly, it's going to be a presidential leadership issue. And that is simply that um, the GOP, which has the House, is very important. House has all money bills originate, originate in the House. The House uh, is where all tax bills must originate, originate. They have the power of the purse. You know, this is about restoring real prosperity to America. Now, you know, steady listeners may have heard me say this in the past. But I will repeat it. The United States grew uh, in real terms adjusted for inflation uh, between 1947, after World War II, and the year 2000, the U.S. grew at 3.5% per year for 50 years, 50-plus 50 years, okay, 47 to 2000. Really quite remarkable. And by the way, we had recessions. I think we had 11 recessions and 12 recoveries or something like that. But... That was a remarkable period of American prosperity. And that prosperity benefited everybody across the board, created phenomenal opportunities. Uh, And, um, you know, whether we can replicate that or not remains to be seen. But in the last 20, almost 25 years, our growth rate has fallen back uh, to about 1.5%, 1.7%, 1.8% under 2%. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that we have these huge budget deficits. We are not producing enough economic growth from business and uh, consumers and employment uh, to cover our spending. And the welfare state has grown larger, and central planning has grown larger. And unfortunately, some of this has happened during... Republican administrations, uh, and as well as Democratic administrations. We have not solved our prosperity problem. And basic building blocks of prosperity, uh, low tax rates, minimal regulations, uh, price stability, a sound, reliable dollar, Uh, restrained, limited government and government spending, which includes, you know, that's the real source of the debt problem is we just spend too much. This has got to be the number one issue in this campaign. And it's got to be the number one longer-term issue. You know, these you see these uh, very bad long-term debt estimates uh, from the Congressional Budget Office, where debt to GDP will rise. You know, right now it's running around 100%, uh, which is just w- itself way too high. Right, let me stop blathering and uh, bring in my friend Newt Gingrich. We found him. He's former Speaker of the House, as you know. Brilliant Fox News contributor. Hey, hey, Newt. Uh, Newt, glad we got hold of you. Thank you. <clears throat> Memorial Day. As always, best to Ambassador Callista. 
And um, I want to talk to you. You know, you've got this book, Mar- uh, March to the Majority, the real story of the Republican Revolution. It's coming out, what, June 6th. Some of it's already up uh, on Amazon, I think. But I want to start by talking about, you know, what you did then and what are the lessons learned and how you dealt with Bill Clinton, how you got your contract with America, which included work requirements and lower taxes and economic growth. And what what can we take from that in terms of today's uh, battles over the debt ceiling and the fact that we have a very poor economy right now with uh, virtually no growth and uh, high inflation. What can we learn, Newt Gingrich? Hello. Hmm. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I got you. I can hear you. I hear you fine. Or I did. I, I can hear you, Newt. Our listeners can hear you. All right, we're going to try on another line. Um, again, I come back to this <laughs> my prosperity argument, which Newt will fill in the gaps in, in just a moment. We get him on a different line. But um, this has got to be, I mean, here's a statistic for you. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds, but look, uh, Joe Biden's been president for two years plus, almost two and a half years now, and uh Middle-class wages, blue-collar, middle-income wages uh, adjusted for inflation have fallen, fallen 7%. Actually, I believe the number is 7.3% in his, in his term. All right, here's Newt back on a better line, hopefully. Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. I got you. Hey, good. Well, I'm delighted to chat with you, and, and uh, this will be a pretty exciting weekend, I think, uh, they're very likely going to end up with a uh, debt ceiling agreement that is going to be remarkably positive for exactly what you're concerned about. Uh, in lower taxes, less spending, and greater opportunity for people to create jobs and go to work. Newt, go back 25 years. You had to handle Bill Clinton. Uh, we captured the Congress, the contract with America, Ultimately, with lower taxes and less spending and work requirements and so forth, you wound up a tremendous prosperity that actually balanced the budget and created surpluses. Uh, what can we take from that experience a while back, and what can we take f- from that experience today in the debate? Because I think this debt ceiling debate is really just the beginning of the debate. It could be a turning point for conservative economics, but we'll see. Anyway, what can you tell us from your book? Yeah. Well, I, well, I, I just wrote um, March to the Majority, which takes the whole period of this, the 16 years we worked to create a majority, the first majority in 40 years, and then the four years we negotiated with Clinton. And, and March to the Majority is really kind of a cookbook of how you do it. And I have to say, I think with Speaker McCarthy so far, is, is doing a very good job of following that game plan, uh, which starts with the American people. I mean, uh, Lincoln once said, with popular sentiment, anything is possible. Without popular sentiment, nothing is possible. Uh, and Reagan, in his farewell address, said all of his greatest victories were won by the American people, not by him, uh, because they told Congress what they wanted. So you start, you start with the notion 
that you have to have big goals, uh, getting back to a work requirement, for example, which we did with welfare reform, uh, controlling spending, having the kind of tax cuts, and equally important, having the kind of regulatory changes that make it easier for people to create jobs and be entrepreneurs and start companies. All of these things are, are a practical playbook, which, frankly, when you were in the Reagan White House, uh, you were helping develop and implement. It goes, goes back to the 70s. And, and people like uh, Art Laffer, Jack Kemp, um, and, and Reagan picking up the whole theme of supply-side economics and the idea that the way you defeat inflation is you create more jobs, more products, more goods and services. So you, you're mopping up the extra money by providing extra things that people can get, which is very different than what the Federal Reserve is trying to do now, which is a classic demand side. Let's punish everybody until they're so poor that we don't have any inflation because nobody can spend anything. Um, and I think that uh, it's really important, and I, I agree with you. I think the uh, debt ceiling agreement that we're going to see is going to be a, a step. It's not, it's not the whole journey, but it is a clear step towards lower taxes, less spending, and less regulation. And uh, if they follow up on that, I think they're going to – the House Republicans will release a balanced budget proposal – uh, that gets us to balance within 10 years and, and that we'll have a big economic growth component because, as you know, you're the one – I mean, you're really the, the, the greatest teacher about this now. Um, <clears throat> when, when you get to 3.5% growth and you get back to a normal, dynamic America, it's amazing how much revenue that generates, uh, not by raising taxes but by raising prosperity. You know, this supply-side model – which is so important in the Reagan Revolution and which you carried forward through the contract with America. Um, to some extent, it's been lost. There's a bunch of us that are trying to restore it. We saw, we saw good brief glimpses of it during the Trump years. Uh, he was there on lower taxes and regulations, very, very important stuff. But, you know, uh, you had a balanced budget way back then, and I know you and I have talked about this in the last year or two, the principle of a balanced budget is so important, and you can have a pro-growth balanced budget. In fact, growth is essential. High growth and low inflation is essential to a balanced budget. Now, let me just ask you this. You talk, You spent a lot of time with Bill Clinton, all right? And in some vague way, you know, Clinton, I mean, he sort of vaguely understood this, but talk to us. Give us a little history about those conversations with Clinton. Did he understand well, what you were pushing him to do? Yeah, I mean, Clinton had been governor for a long time in Arkansas, which is a very conservative state. Uh, and Clinton understood the, the, the essence of uh, having a lower tax system. Uh, he, he campaigned as a centrist, and he had spent – uh, a number of years trying to help the Democratic Party go back to the center. Uh, but once he got elected, uh, sadly for him and wonderfully for us, uh, the, the congressional Democrats talked him into being vastly more liberal in his first two years in office. And he, he broke the coalition which had elected him and gave us the chance to, to win because they brought up things like, like a tax on energy. Well, America is a big country where people travel a lot and where people in the Northeast worry about the cost of fuel oil, heating oil, uh, and, and people around the country worry about uh, the cost of natural gas and the cost of gasoline. So 
they, they got the House Democrats to ram through without a single Republican vote, a tax increase that was wildly unpopular. Uh, the Senate Democrats wouldn't even take it up. So they felt that the House Democrats had been sort of hung out to dry. Then they went after guns in a way which infuriated rural America. Uh, and you go through a whole series of these things. And, and by 94, Clinton was defeated in a shocking scale of landslide. Nobody expected a Republican House, but we also picked up the Senate. We picked up governorships. We picked up state legislators. Uh, and Clinton, who was a very practical guy, he'd, he'd won in 78 as the youngest governor in the country and lost in 80 and spent two years worrying about having lost because he didn't have much money. And that many lost the governor's mansion, the car, the airplane, the state police. You know. <laughs> and so he really wanted to get back to be governor again. Plus, he was an ambitious guy and he wanted to someday be president. So there was a big fight in the White House in June of 95, and all of his liberal staff said to him, you know, you have to take Gingrich head on. You have to fight for our values. You have to stand firm for liberalism. And he said to them, you know, if I do what you want me to, I'm going to get beat in 96. But if I work with Gingrich, I might be able to get reelected. And I ain't going to do what you want me to. And we, we had, when, when we were negotiating, there were a couple of times, for example, when Leon Panetta, who at that time was his chief of staff, would, would, would literally jump up in anger and yell at him and say, you can't do that. We lost control of the House because we did that. And if you repeal it, it will make everything we sacrificed you know, useless. And Clinton would just stare at him. I mean, I, yeah. I'd never quite seen a president dressed down by his chief of staff before. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, then, and, then, and then he would say, well, maybe I can't do all of it. And then he'd do half of it. And so you, you could move him. I mean, we, people forget... And, and this is where I'm really pleased with the way that, that Speaker McCarthy is operating, because he's going down to see the president. They are having conversations. Uh, I met with Clinton uh, on 35 different days uh, in order to uh, get a balanced budget agreement. And, and, you know, you had to sit in a room and you had to talk it out. Uh, but he was a guy you could talk with. Uh, you know, I, I, can't, I couldn't imagine trying to do that with Barack Obama. Mm. <laughs> Boy. Newt, uh, let me just take a quick commercial break. I want to come back and continue exactly this conversation. And uh, I want to raise the point that Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter on the economy and that Bill Clinton beat uh, Papa Bush on the economy. And the Republicans had their heyday on the economy. And you're right. Kevin McCarthy understands that. The question is, do our presidential candidates understand that? Folks, we're talking to Newt Gingrich, of course, former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor. His new book, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, is coming out June 6th. It's available for pre-order. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with Newt Gingrich in just a moment. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking with the great Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, best-selling author, Fox News contributor. His new book is called March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. It's out June 6th, available for pre-order. Newt, uh, thanks for doing this on Memorial Day weekend. So point I wanted to hammer home on is Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter on the economy in 1980. Bill Clinton beat Papa Bush on the economy uh, in, uh, in uh, 1992. Now, Clinton went left. 
you clobbered him in the midterm elections, and then Clinton went to the right. Uh, it just seems to me that this presidential election is going to be a pocketbook election on the economy. Uh, it's going to be whether the GOP can persuade voters that they are the stewards of economic prosperity. Can they produce a balanced budget? Can they get inflation down? Can they promote supply-side growth policies? You did it way back when. Uh, it's been done in small doses. The question is, can it be done in a larger dose now? Can the GOP be successful? Well, I think they can, and I think that the message of, of opportunity, the message of a successful America is a very powerful, very compelling message. Uh, and, you know, I, I watched uh, Tim, Senator Tim Scott, for example, announced the other day uh, for president, and he did a great job of, of talking in a positive way, almost like Reagan. Uh, Reagan always believed that the future would be better. Um, and and uh, it's just remarkable. You know, even in Reagan's last public statements as, as he was uh, dealing with Alzheimer's, he still had a positive comment about the future of America uh, because he just that, that's who he was. It was deep in his soul. Um, I think that the American people are hungry for leadership. Uh, and this is part of why I think the House Republicans are off to an amazingly good start um, because they're uh, they're being positive. They're offering hope uh, and they're doing it on a number of things. I mean, people don't always realize, for example, if they, if they get in this deal uh, on, on the debt ceiling, they get the right kind of permitting reform. They suddenly make infrastructure investment and oil and gas investment dramatically more desirable. Uh, and you get you begin to get a virtuous circle where, uh, and this is part of how we got to a, four years of a balanced budget. And frankly, when I left office, Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, had given a speech saying that they thought that they might pay off the national debt by 2009. Mm. And they had a study group at the Federal Reserve trying to figure out how do you manage your money supply if you have no debt? Uh, <laughs> yes. Now, you know, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then, frankly, George W. Bush didn't have a clue what we were doing. Uh, and, and they promptly deviated and didn't, they didn't understand the enormous long-term value of the discipline of a balanced budget. Um, it forces you to think about what you're spending. It forces you to, to set priorities. It forces you to cut out waste and fraud. Uh, and, um, you know, we've been in a period of just, uh, as Reagan used to say, he would say we, we were spending like drunken sailors, but he didn't, want to, he didn't want to insult the sailors because we were actually spending a lot more than a drunken sailor would. Um, and that was part of his campaign against against Carter. Uh, he, he had a great line, by the way. You may remember this because you, you were so deeply involved in it. But he had this thing where he said, you know, if your brother-in-law is laid off, it's called a recession. Uh, if you're laid off, it's called a depression. If Jimmy Carter's laid off, it's called a recovery. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, lo- I lo- absolutely love that. So <clears throat> um, the key to... A balanced budget. I mean, I think the country yearns for a balanced budget. It's an odd issue, but I think they. It's. It sounds like it's a sort of, you know, boring issue. But I think people want that. They may not know exactly why, but I think that you know our fiscal house has got to be in order to get the country back in order. Right. You know, look. I think part of it's moral. Uh, part of it is is uh, the personal experience. Families know they can't run big deficits forever. Uh, small business owners know you can't run a big deficit forever. Uh, and I, you know, we, we have a project, as you know, called America's New Majority Project, which, which people can see if they go to America's New Majority Project.com. 
and we do a lot of very extensive polling. And I would say that something like 80% of the American people uh, favor a balanced budget and believe it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing to do. About 10 or 12% oppose it, uh, you know, mostly government employees and, and government contractors who want the money. Uh, but I think overwhelmingly it's a positive, popular issue. Uh, and, and back, I think the long, more you talk about it, the more popular it's going to get. Uh, I, I think that uh, Jody Arrington, as the Budget Committee chairman, is, is right at the beginning of riding a wave that will be amazing. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you see breakthroughs every day in technology and new opportunities and new efficiencies. Uh, you apply those to the government. You can, you can really have dramatically better government with a lot lower budget. Uh, and, and, uh, and frankly, the American people instinctively believe that the federal government has huge levels of waste, and they're right. I mean, you, you look at the thefts, for example. California had $20 billion, not million, $20 billion stolen mm. in unemployment compensation. I mean, mm. it's, it's staggering to think you have bureaucracies that are that incompetent. And I don't want to lose your theme. We're running out of time here. But big government socialism loses in the polling overwhelmingly to free market capitalism. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a huge opportunity for all of us who are conservatives. To, to, the country is seeing Biden fail. We need to make it a, a program failure, not a personal failure, and get him to all understand right. that our way works. Newt Gingrich, The March to Majority, comes out June 6th, folks. you got to go out and buy that book. Thank you, Newt. Happy Memorial Day. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about presidential politics. How's that? Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we bring in my longtime pal, Roger Stone, veteran political consultant and strategist, worked for Nixon, Reagan, Trump. Anyway, Roger Stone, how are you? Great to be back with you, Larry. Yeah, thanks for doing this on Memorial Day. We appreciate it. Raj, I want to talk some presidential politics. Nobody knows this stuff better than you do. Uh, we had two announcements last week. One of them was Tim Scott, Senator Scott of South Carolina. And, of course, the big one was uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Actually, let me. what do you think of the Tim Scott story, Roger Stone? What do you think? Let's just start with that for a moment and then we'll go to DeSantis. Well, potentially interesting, Larry. I, he had a more conventional and traditional announcement. Uh, you know, one of the ways you run for vice president is, of course, running for president and doing a little better than people expect. Uh, I could see a lot of scenarios under which Tim Scott might be a viable vice presidential candidate, and therefore someday a more viable presidential candidate. But, uh, you know, obviously any time an African-American emerges as a, as a significant and viable Republican presidential candidate, it's a, it's a viable news story. I think Tim Scott's got a lot of upside potential. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I thought he did very well. By the way, I like traditional announcements. I think, they, I think it's a good thing. Speaking of which, um, Governor DeSantis's Twitter feed announcement was neither traditional nor successful. As the feed broke down, I think what what saved it partially was he had a good interview with Trey Gowdy of Fox News uh, later on, so people could get a better sense of what he stood for and 
and who he was. But what was your take on the DeSantis announcement, first of all? Let's start there. First of all, we live in a, a visual you know, universe, a, a visual uh, uh, communications system. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting. It was very good for Twitter, by the way, and mm-hmm. good for Elon Musk. And that's a good thing because I think Twitter is beginning to emerge as a real alternative to the legacy media. Clearly, when Tucker Carlson heads there to do a Twitter-based show, which I think is imminent, uh, it's going to shift a lot of the ground over there, and Twitter's going to continue to be an important political uh, you know, outlet. Uh, on the other hand, the problem with this is you couldn't see DeSantis. You couldn't see whether he was reading uh, his, his opening remarks. Uh, I have a feeling the questions were carefully scripted, as were the answers. By the way, I, I applied to ask a question. It's funny, Larry, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't accepted. Uh, I, I, but I think it speaks to the larger question of whether DeSantis can perform in an unscripted atmosphere, in an atmosphere in which he doesn't control the microphone. Uh, he doesn't seem to be very good on his feet. Uh, and then secondarily, you cannot run for president without submitting yourself ultimately to a full press conference. There's a lot of questions about his conduct in Florida, a lot of questions about changes in the state law that make his travels and the expenses for his travels and his security uh, a secret. They heretofore were under our state sunshine law. He took a multi-million dollar book advance from, from HarperCollins, which is the news corporation, uh, they're not going to sell $10 million worth of books. Uh, I think you've got to be able to take these questions in an open format. Uh, and he's so far, he has gone to all controlled situations. I agree with you. His interview with Trey Gowdy was pretty good. His interview with Mark Levin was pretty good. But, again, friendly questioners in both cases. You know, Roger, um, as a, we were just talking with Newt Gingrich in the earlier segment, and this is going to be, in large measure, a pocketbook election, okay? In some sense, the way Reagan beat uh, uh, Carter was on the economy. The way Clinton beat Papa Bush was on the economy. It's the economy, stupid. I think this one's going to be quite similar. Um, I know DeSantis is a smart guy. I know Florida. I know he inherited a zero-income tax in Florida uh, from past uh, Republican administrations. But I don't see an economic growth and prosperity agenda. It's my single biggest critique of Governor DeSantis. He, he's Woke is fine up to a point, but I think he's gone too far. I, I, I don't think he can beat Trump uh, or Biden unless he has a far, far better economic growth agenda. Uh, I think there's three legs to the stool, Larry. One is uh, an economic growth agenda. He has not put one forward. Secondarily is a more cogent foreign policy, particularly one centered around the dangers of China and the communist Chinese went unmentioned in his uh, uh, in his announcement pretty much anywhere. Uh, and then lastly uh, is the are the cultural issues. But we cannot certainly win on the cultural issues alone. And that seems to be what drives him. Uh, so I, I agree with your analysis. I think there are a lot of missing pieces. Uh, add on top of all that immigration problem mm-hmm. at our southern border. Uh, so I, I don't think you have a full uh, and broad candidacy at this point. 
He's um, down 30, 40 points to Trump right now in the primaries. Can he make that back? What does he have to do to make that back? Well, look, everything is going to be, as it has always been, uh, contingent on what happens in these early primary and caucus states. Reagan was leading George H.W. Bush by 18 when Bush pulled an upset in the Iowa caucuses simply by physically uh, outworking Reagan. Reagan's, uh, I was there, of course, working for Reagan. Reagan's folks, uh, we made a miscalculation thinking that Reagan could just parachute into the state, give a couple speeches and leave and that we would win. Trump cannot, in my opinion, and I'm strongly supporting President Trump, just to be clear, but I don't think he can make the same error and get outworked in any of these early contests. Uh, he is He's a strong front runner. There's huge intensity and loyalty among his voters. They're unlikely to leave him. He has enough votes in both states, in all three early states, to win a multi-candidate contest now, but he's going to have to identify and turn out those votes he cannot allow DeSantis to outwork him. Uh, he can't outthink him, but he can outwork him, and the president cannot allow that. I don't think he. I don't think he will. By the way, shouldn't Trump debate? I think it will be absolutely crucial to debate at the end of the day. On the other hand, Trump should debate on his own terms. He shouldn't debate when Fox demands it. He should not do it when the Republican National Committee demands it. You can't really have a debate unless the front runner is involved. So Trump is in a very strong position to dictate the conditions uh, and the dates uh, of the debates. But ultimately, I think it will be required. You think you should go? The first debate is in August out in Milwaukee. You think you should do it? Not necessarily. I think uh, he should uh, he should look at his options again. The race can't begin without the front runner. A debate can't be real without the front runner. A debate between Ron DeSantis and all the other candidates, my guess is the other candidates really all understand they need to get up and over DeSantis before they can get to Trump. Attacking Trump with his you know, deep intensity of support is really dangerous. So a debate without Trump would end up being a, you know, a, a pile-on for Governor DeSantis, and there's plenty to talk about there. Mm. That's an interesting point. It would be a pylon. It would be like uh, playing the semifinals before you get into the finals of the of the tennis tournament. Um, Roger, you're for Trump. How's how is walk through? How is Trump in the CNN debate? I'm going to call. I know it's a town hall, but it was really a debate with that woman. Um, how's his messaging so far, Roger Stone? I can't think of any other public figure, and that includes Ron DeSantis. Who could go into that kind of lion's den and emerge, I think, is the dominant winner. I mean, he is he is at his best when he's under pressure. And you saw a very combative, aggressive, assertive Trump. Uh, no, he's not going to stop saying that he thinks the election uh, was stolen from him because he believes it was. There's a lot of evidence to that effect. He is not going to uh, he is not going to back off any of his current positions. So I think he went in there and dominated uh, in a very, very hostile situation where the moderator was also essentially his opponent. So I, I can't imagine that anyone else can do that kind of un- unscripted uh, job. I thought it was a triumph in all yeah, honesty. I did, too. I think he hit a home run. I also, Roger, from my lights on the economy, I thought Trump messaged very well. You know, in a sense, the turning point in that debate for the nationwide audience was when he said, drill, baby, drill. 
And then he walked right through his achievements on taxes and regulations and uh, economic growth. I mean, to me, that's the stuff of a victory. Well, politics is always about the future. It's never about the past. The good thing about Trump is that he can lay out a plan which is really basically back to the future, meaning he's a proven uh, uh, performer, particularly on the economy. You're talking about the greatest rate of job creation in our history, the greatest rate of wage growth, the lowest levels of unemployment among black Americans, white Americans, Hispanic Americans, young, old, urban, rural. I mean, it's a, it's a stunning economic record. You know, Larry, because you were there helping implement his programs. Uh, that will be the, the central economy, uh, the central issue. What's going to – I think they're fudging these – Unemployment numbers. I think they, the Fed, you know, manipulates them because, uh, and the Bureau of, of Labor Statistics uh, manipulates them. I don't think nearly the reality is not nearly as rosy as the Biden administration tells us. You'd be in a better position to tell me what will happen in terms of inflation, but I think there's very little chance the economy will be stronger today uh, in 2024 by November than it will be than it is today. Uh, and Trump's got a proven track record, which I uh, has huge credibility, both in the foreign policy realm uh, and uh, in terms of his being the one guy with the credibility to end the war in Ukraine. He's the guy who cut off the Russian pipeline. He's the guy who gave Ukrainians offensive missiles. He's got the credibility to negotiate a settlement and do it before the Biden administration stumbles us into World War III. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a, almost a sleeper point, Roger. We, we've got to go, but... Um, you know, it's Joe Biden's war and he's spending a fortune on the war and the war looks like a stalemate. And, it, and Trump says, stop the killing, stop the killing. I, I think that was a huge plus in that CNN town hall. I really do. I think uh, Americans are getting we love freedom and democracy, but you have to be somewhat realistic about these things, too. And, uh, I think Trump has a unique ability to run as the peace candidate, uh, as yeah. the one candidate who could bring this law, this war to a conclusion and stop the killing. Uh, uh, look, the Russians would never have moved on Ukraine. The, the Chinese would never move on Taiwan because of the unpredictability of Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, and he's the one guy with the with the negotiating chops, I think, proven mm. uh, to end this war. That's that is going to be a. Huge sleeper issue. Yeah, 100%. Roger Stone, thank you ever so much. Great to talk to you. Great to hear your voice. We'll talk soon. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and then Betsy McCoy is going to come in, talk about her great New York Post column. Why can't we bust shoplifters, for heaven's sakes? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, writing in the New York Post, shoplifters must be jailed or our cities will be destroyed. Stores are fleeing New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Portland. Cities that soft on crime mayors and district attorneys have made shoplifters paradises. We welcome back Betsy McCoy, New York Post columnist, former New York Lieutenant Governor. Betsy, thank you for doing this. Happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. It's a wonderful day to celebrate those who have shown impossible valor, and I'm glad you started out our segment by remembering them. Yeah, thank you very much. A terrible thing. 
a terrible thing is happening in our cities, especially in the blue states, where, as you pointed out, state lawmakers are coddling the criminals instead of protecting the rest of us. So you see in cities like New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, Portland, in the blue states, the stores are literally pulling out. What's a city without stores? But they're they're leaving because their profits have been so hard hit by what they politely call shrinkage. It's not shrinkage. This is organized theft. Right. And why won't they um, stop it? Well, all these blue state, blue city, blue state, I mean, the state legislatures are as bad or worse than the local prosecutors. Why won't they do anything? I mean, in a sense, it's just common sense. If they make the argument that the, that this shoplifting is the result of po- uh, poverty, that is totally wrong. Poor people don't steal. Criminals do. And you and I know, because we live in New York City, you go into a drugstore and the guy standing down the aisle has a calculator in his hand. He's shoving the goods off the shelves into a bag, but he's, he's keeping track of what they're worth because he has to stay under the $1,000 limit, which is the definition of a felony in New York. So he, he steals $990. If he has more, he puts it back on the shelf because he's going to come back for another haul the next day. And that's what we see in stores. It's very frightening, actually, to be in a store and see this happening because you realize civilization is just crumbling around your feet. And it's no fun to shop. Everything's it's now locked up. up, right? I mean, it's I, I've seen it. I've done it in the in New York City. New York City is not the only place. Uh, it's not near as bad up here in Connecticut, though. So, I mean, it's no fun. They're just wrecking it for everybody. That's right. You go into a store and everything's locked up behind these glass barriers, right? I, I, I'm brushing my teeth with bubblegum flavored children's toothpaste <laughs> because I didn't have time to wait to find a clerk to open up the, the glass cabinet for the adult toothpaste. Can you imagine? So I'm reminded every morning how bad it's gotten. Yes. And <laughs> but but you, but you can blame the the legislatures and Florida has fixed this by the way. In Florida they've changed the law so that prosecutors and the and the police are able to aggregate what a criminal steals over a 30-day period. And if it hits that felony mark, they they hit him with a, a felony and this criminal is jailed. But New York and California refuse to pass a law redefining this kind of theft to make it a felony. So every day, if the criminal steals less than a thousand, he's literally out on the street before the cops finish their paperwork. Let me give you a statistic that's staggering. Last year in New York City, 327 people, according to the NYPD, were responsible for a large part of these thefts, mm. 327 people who were arrested a total of 6,000 mm. times. <laughs> but they're still all out on the street. And they, they still won't change an the law. hour or so, right? <laughs> and they still won't change the law, right? They keep coming back they and doing it. They still won't change the law. And we've and got the- to put pressure. And here's, here's Eric Adams. Now, admittedly, he's the mayor of New York. He Admittedly, he can only do so much without the cooperation of the legislature. But he's in la-la land. He unveiled a, a proposal last week to stop shoplifting by erecting kiosks mm. in the stores that are hit most often, 
like the Target store on Greenwich Street, which was hit 646 times last year. So he wants to put a kiosk in each of those stores where would-be thieves will go to collect social services instead. What is he thinking? Mm. That's a pipe dream. These people are not stealing because they need diapers for their babies or food for their children. They're stealing because they're crooks, and they're selling the goods online. And I read in the paper in the New York Post this morning, the controller of New York City, another left-wing Democrat, wants to raise taxes. He wants to raise taxes. Now, what is the tax impact of all this shoplifting? Oh, well, first of all, as the stores close, we lose all the re- all the sales tax. Mm-hmm. It's a big loss for New York, San Francisco, L.A. when these stores pull out. And so how about higher taxes in New York? You're a former lieutenant governor. Isn't well, that just that what the state and city needs? We're losing. We're bleeding taxpayers in New York. We are bleeding taxpayers. They are leaving. They're voting with their feet, going to Florida and other states. The last thing we can afford to do is raise taxes. What we need in New York, pardon me for being blunt, we need law and order. People are afraid to live in New York. They can't do business in New York. The stores are closing. We need law enforcement. Betsy McCoy, it's a great way to end it. (laughs) It's exactly right. Happy Memorial Day. Thanks for helping us. Talk soon. Thanks, Larry. God bless our troops. God bless our troops. God bless those that gave the ultimate sacrifice to this, the greatest country in the world. Folks, we're going to take a break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk about the economy. Recession and inflation looms large. John Carney and Joe Lavorni will be here to help us out. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Lots more to do. The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Let's have a nice leisurely discussion about the economy. We had a bunch of numbers out this past week. They're not good. Inflation is sticky. Recession looms. Let's talk to our two stars this morning, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor for Economics and Finance, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, and Joe Lavornia, who's a former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council and presently chief economist at SMBC Nico Security. Gentlemen, let's talk. Joe Lavornia, I'm going to start with you. I noticed after these numbers came out on income and spending and durable goods and GDP revisions, blah, blah, blah. The uh, Atlanta Fed GDP tracker is now down to 1.9%. Whoops, it was 2.9. Now it's down to 1.9 for the second quarter. Uh, The first quarter was 1.3. What do you make of it, Joe? Everyone's saying about there's a recession. It's the most widely heralded recession in history. A lot of people think we're going to have a soft landing. I don't know. I have my doubts. I know. What do you think? You you, uh, Remember, we had the recessionary... Uh, the inflationary recession in some sense early last year when real GDP declined two quarters in a row, but the labor market didn't soften, so effectively it wasn't a recession by any any uh, basic measure. What's really interesting, uh, we have data now on uh, gross domestic income, and uh, that's where the corporate profits data, one of your favorite series, uh, the mother's milk, of, if you will, as you say, of, of, of sort of the business cycle, 
What's interesting about the gross domestic income data, Larry, is if we inflation adjust with the deflator, we were down 3.2% in the uh, in the fourth quarter last year and down 2.4% in the first quarter. And what's interesting about that, if you, if you recall, when GDP was negative in the first half of 22, the administration was arguing the income numbers were strong, and that's what mattered. Now what we're seeing is the GDP numbers look okay, not great, okay at best, but the income numbers are negative. So to me, the, the recessionary backdrop, even though it's well advertised, given this Fed and how hawkish it is, we're still going to get one, Larry. Well, I think that, you know, in income terms, we're in a recession. I mean, for yeah. all we know, and it's all said and done, we've had a double-dip recession. The first half of last year was the first dip. Then we had a small comeback, very small comeback. And now we may be heading in, and we may already be in the second leg, John Carney. I mean, it's interesting, these income numbers. But the other stuff is inflation is very sticky, right? very sticky. I mean, uh, the income, the uh, personal spending and income numbers, let's see, the PCE deflator, 4.4%. Core deflator, excluding food and energy, 4.7%. The median CPI from the Cleveland Fed is still hovering around 7%. I mean, this, this, you know, Joe called it inflationary recession. I mean, I'm inclined to agree with that. John Carney. Hello? Did we lose John? I can hear you, but I don't hear the program. Oh. All right, we're going to work on that. Joe Livornia, pick up the slack here, because I think inflationary recession is exactly where this economy is. It is, Larry, and inflation is, well, the core rates are sticky, but here's the thing. What the irony is the headline inflation rate, the consumer price index, which to me is the, is the measure we're supposed to look at because we've got data that's going back almost 100 years. Everybody's heard of the consumer price index. That's what sets wage contracts, not this silly PC deflator, which – no one until recently has heard of, and it's an implicit way to revise all the time. Yeah. Um, but I digress. If you look at the CPI, the CPI actually got to 9% last year, and it's down to just under 5 I mean, it's still way too high, but it is actually coming down. And if you're worried about inflation expectations, those things are contained. And I'll tell you what, if the Fed continues to uh, – tighten rates or keep rates high, and we continue to strangle the business side of the economy, we'll have a recession, and we won't, we're, and we won't be worried about prices. We'll be worried about people's jobs. And that's what worries me the most as I look to the next 6 to 12 months. Well, remember, uh, cumulatively speaking, the CPI is up over 15% since Joe Biden uh, came in. I'm measuring this off of February 2021. So that's a big number. And... Uh, Let's see, energy up 33%, and food prices, let me look, yeah, food prices for groceries at home, 23%. I mean, those are big numbers, Joe. So you're right, the rate of change has slowed, but isn't it kind of moving sideways right now? Isn't that what some of the uh, data showed in this past week? On the core, yes, you're right on the core side. And you're also correct if you look at the working class or blue-collar wages, those real wages have, have declined significantly uh, since 2021, and that's something that's very unusual to kick off a business cycle. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, Larry, I, I just still cannot be positive about the outlook because you have the consumer, which is 70% of the economy, and yet the consumer's living standards are declining. And that's why even though you have an unemployment rate that right now is 3.4%, 
you've got these historic, historically low and recessionary readings from the University from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment data. So it's a very weird situation, but one I'd argue that really isn't fundamentally healthy. Do you think those? Um, do we get uh, Carney in yet? Yes, I'm here, Larry. Uh, All right, go. So, <laughs> so one of the uh, so I do think that core inflation and any other measure you take of sort of underlying inflationary pressures have been really troubling lately because. Look, we had 10 hikes in a row, including a whole bunch of 75 basis point hikes. And yet what we seem to have done is gotten inflation down from 9% down to 5%, and then we've gotten stuck. Uh, and we haven't really gone anywhere for five or six months now. A lot of that inflation, by the way, was not rate hikes. That The deflation we saw, a lot of that was things like clearing up supply chain channels, so we brought it down from that 9% level down to 5 but we haven't made any progress. The Fed, I think, is going to look at that um, out of these last PCE numbers. We'll have one more CPI number before the next meeting. I don't think that's going to be reassuring. And so I think they're going to say, we've got to keep hiking. That doesn't mean they hike in June, but I think they're going to send a definite message that they're going to keep hiking. And I agree with Joe that they, if they do that, we will end up in a recession eventually. Um, well, it's just not right now. We all thought it was going to happen earlier, and it hasn't occurred yet. Well, again, it may be a double dip. I mean, we don't know that when, when these numbers the are thing, all. From I your mean, conversation the other day, Larry, um, uh, where we're seeing, we may be seeing something in which we're seeing parts of the economy boom and right. parts have a recession. A kind of, you know, a recession really happens when all the parts of the economy, the economy sort of fail at once. Instead, what we saw was we saw housing go down last year. Manufacturing is going down now. Services have been very good. When that goes down, though, it becomes very hard to maintain the economy growing because it's such a big part of the economy. Joe Lavornia, what do you do uh, with the all the various leading indicators now? You have the index of leading indicators, which uh, you pointed out, 13 straight months. I think you said down 8% against a year ago. Um, but you have the very steeply inverted yield curve. Short rates are a whole lot higher than long rates. And then um, commodity prices have been quite soft, the broad commodity indexes. You know, these are things that typically are leading indicators. Uh they're all pointing towards recession. And Ed Hyman was on the TV show this past week, okay? He's the number one rated economist on Wall Street for four decades. And one of the points he made is that, you know, recessions can follow quarters of growth. You could, you could be growing the economy at 2 or 3% for two, three quarters, four quarters, uh, and then all of a sudden – recession kicks in. And I'm just wondering, Joe Lavorne, whether that isn't the situation we're in today. Larry, we had something similar occur back from 06 to 08 when that also was a very highly anticipated recession. Uh, it was going to be led by housing. Uh, the index of indicators was, was down significantly, but it took almost two years before it peaked and the economy peaked. And I remember in 08, uh, people were saying we weren't going to go into a recession. You know what happened in the second quarter of 08 when we were in what turned out to be the deepest recession since the 30s? The economy grew almost 
2.5% in the second quarter of 08. Right. You are exactly right. Uh, Ed is spot on. Uh, this makes forecasting so difficult and the data have limitations. But we very well could be in a recession now. It could be a double dip. But even if the recession hasn't hit and it occurs next year, to have growth uh, in GDP can happen and often does happen. The leading indicators, and that's what I'm focused on, as you said, the leading indicators, the yield curve, commodity prices, I'd also add bank lending standards. All those metrics, Larry, tell us we're going to slow. You know, John Carney, if you step back for a minute, the last um, five quarters have been less than 1% growth. I mean, if you kind of smooth out the trend. You know, 2021 was a year of COVID recovery uh, and so forth. And also a year of rising inflation, but the la- you know all of 2022 and the first quarter of 23, it was less than one percent. I mean, it's a very very soft economy. People, um, you know, you can focus on monthly data and quarterly data, John Carney, but you may be missing the bigger picture. We're in a slump. However, one defines the word slump. We're in a slump. I like the word slump, Larry, because it gets us away from this idea of, like, are we in an official recession? Is the economy contracting? Right. Uh, another way I look at it is there's a measure that they put out uh, with the second revision of GDP that's called GDI. That yeah. was negative. Uh, it's, even if you average GDP and GDI together, it has shown it, that average, which is what some economists do to try to you know get through the confusing data, uh, that average has been negative for four out of the last five quarters. So that's a slump, right? Whether it counts as a recession, and look, that, that also helps explain why you have things like very low unemployment rates, but, you know, almost, you know, we, we have now erased half the gains from the from last summer yeah. in consumer sentiment, where, you know, which was the, where we hit the lowest level ever. Uh, so we are, by most definitions, in a very bad economy, which is, makes it bizarre that the Biden administration keeps saying it's great. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean we're, you know, so, so I think that's actually more useful than, you know, debating over the technicality doesn't count as a recession. Who cares? It's well, a bad that was, economy. Joe Lavorni was talking about, uh, about the income numbers falling. Look, Biden is bragging. No one's told him that it's a soft economy. He <laughs> no one's, someone's got to tell him. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, come back and talk about Fed policy and whether this um, debt ceiling thing has any impact on the economy. We've got John Carney of Breitbart. We've got Joe Lavornia of SNBC Nico Securities. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking the economy. It's a somewhat gloomy discussion, but it can't help it. That's what the facts show. We're here with John Carney, Breitbart News Editor for Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. And uh, my pal Joe Lavornia, former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council and chief economist at SMBC Nico Securities. Uh, Joe Lavornia, does this debt ceiling business have any economic impact? No, Larry, it doesn't. It uh, it will get uh, it will get done, uh, as you know. Um, I think there are a lot of areas where, where both sides have overlap and can compromise. And comments I had seen overnight from the speaker, Speaker McCarthy, were were optimistic that uh, he could get a deal done by by June fifth. 
as that uh, June 1X date really wasn't a hard date, which we never thought it would. <laughs> well, this, is, this is the same Janet Yellen who said inflation was transitory. It, it, it took her about a year to figure it out. I mean, I'm <laughs> applying the one-year lag. We could probably get through a whole year without a debt ceiling. <laughs> yeah, but it'll get done, Larry, and it'll, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about it maybe in 25 or after. But the market has a lot of experience with these uh, with these things. I call it kabuki theater. Yeah, it is kabuki theater. You know, John Carney, lost in the shuffle of this uh, debt ceiling baloney, um, the budget deficit for this year is going to be a big number. It could be as high as $2 trillion. I know Joe Biden says he's cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion, for which he was awarded a bottomless Pinocchio Award by the Washington Post. But we're, we're running a very large budget deficit this year, again. And we're running a large budget deficit at a time where unemployment is down at 3.4%. This is troubling from any economic theory. You should not be having to, you, when, you know, when you get into a crunch or a slump, you want some room for fiscal expansion. When you already have an expansive fiscal policy, you're actually limiting your ability to respond in the future. And so we really shouldn't be doing this. It is irresponsible. You know, There's longer-term problems with it, but just doing what we're doing this year and the last couple of years has been really troubling. That's an important point. Uh, and, Joe, look, a good Keynesian – Joe Lavornia would say running a huge budget deficit when you're at full employment and you still have high inflation is really the totally wrong policy. Now, you have a little Keynesian blood left in you. I don't have any Keynesian blood in me at all. But still, a, a Larry Summers, Jason Furman Keynesian would say this is very bad. And incidentally, the bulk of the deficit is coming from overspending. They're running about $450 billion ahead of last year on spending, Joe. Larry, first of all, let me just say that I am a reformed Keynesian. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> okay let's, get, let's get that straight. Uh, second thing, uh, you mentioned Larry Summers. Uh, Larry Summers is a good Keynesian, and Larry Summers was very clear in February of, uh, of 21 that he was adamant against uh, big fiscal spending because based on how he approaches the world, which – I don't necessarily agree with as it relates to output gaps in the Phillips curve, but be that as it may, very Keynesian, thought there would be a major inflation problem. And that's what we got. So you're correct. We, sh we should be running much smaller deficits. We should have much higher revenue to GDP, all things considered, uh, when you're at full employment. But it speaks to the fact that, again, the economy is not very dynamic, Larry. We've had very weak productivity growth. The equity market's held up. It's been very narrowly focused. But we need rising productivity because that's what determines long-term living standards, and we have to get those real wages positive. They cannot be negative because that's just not economic health. John Maynard Keynes would say we should be running budget surpluses right now. That's I right. I communed with him earlier in the week. <laughs> uh, uh, John Carney, let me go back to your Fed call. Uh, you think they're – going to raise a quarter in June and or July? Is that... I, I, I do. I think that we are looking at another raise unless we get some very unexpected weak jobs. Remember, there's not enough data between now and the meeting uh, in mid-June. So, we're, you know, we have basically all I think that can make a difference is the you know, non-farm payroll number. If that comes in, you know, super low or negative, sure, maybe they, they, then they don't 
hike. But if that comes in above 200,000, which I think the odds are very good that might happen, then I think that we're looking at another June hike. Uh, so barring an unexpected economic calamity between now and then, uh, I think we're looking at another hike. Is that, is that this coming Friday, that report? Yes. Joe yes. Avornia, what do you think about Fed policy here? Uh, look, the Fed, to me, is restrictive, Larry. Uh, I agree with John's comments that uh, there's not a lot to keep them from hiking other than a weak, very weak employment report. Maybe CPI right before they meet, maybe that could do it. Market right now is almost 70% chance of a June hike, so they're probably going to go at this stage. But, I, I, look, policy works with those long and variable lags. Interest rates are high. Um, household borrowing costs are at the highest in over 20 years. Why not just wait? I don't think... Higher rates are what we need now to get inflation down. There's other things we can do to get inflation down, but higher rates, in my opinion, uh, it's, it's not one of them. And we're going to wind up, you know, using monetary policy as that blunt instrument, as it's known, and bludgeon the economy lower. Joe, are these BLS numbers on jobs and unemployment reliable? No, but they never have been uh, because of the net birth to death adjustments and the seasonal factors and the ability to survey our economy in real time that has been rapidly changing over the years as it's moved to more services and intellectual property over a period of years yes larry the numbers the numbers are 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 good but in real time they get revised a ton last month we had almost 150,000 in downward revisions to jobs and the three-month trend in jobs right now is the slowest since january of 21 so over time, I think the numbers will, will bear weakness on the job side, but now they look okay. But I think that might be the way we put the numbers together. And, John Carney, last one. I notice, um, you know, you've had a big sell-off in the bond market, so interest rates have come up quite a bit. The 10-year is back to 380. But, um, John, the mortgage rate is over 7%. 30-year mortgage rate, 715 now. That had come down. It's gone back up. Uh, housing looked like it was bottoming, maybe even improving slightly. Will this mortgage rate squelch any housing? I think it will be a drag, but I think we've actually had a sort of mental adjustment to higher mortgage rates. You, uh, six months ago, people were shocked when they tried to buy a home and found out that they had to pay, you know, 65 to 7%. Now, there's actually some, you know, level setting going on, and people are willing to buy even if they have to pay close to 7% All for right. their mortgage. Thanks to both of you, John Carney at Breitbart, Joe Labornia, SMBC, Nico Securities, folks. We're going to take a break. On the side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. Stock market is very, very interesting today. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. Hang around. It's a Memorial Day weekend. We love the people that have given the ultimate sacrifice to make America great. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is great to be with you on Memorial Day weekend, which is a cherished weekend in America where we celebrate, remember, pray, express our gratitude for those men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice to keep our country the greatest country in the history of history, to keep our freedoms and our democracies. I know that has nothing to do with the stock market, but it may have everything to do with the stock market. 
because of our many freedoms. Anyway, we're going to do some stock market work. I do want to remind you, you can watch us on TV, Fox Business Network, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Fox Business Network. And uh, if for some reason you can't be there at 4, you can just text your favorite 9-year-old and she'll teach you how to DVR that show. And here you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. Let's do some stock market work. We've got Jack Perusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and we've got Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media, co-host of the great show Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. Gentlemen, welcome. Mike Ozanian, the Yankees need a solid, I, this of course has, this is what I always do. The Yankees need a good starting pitcher, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, somebody probably can, too, Larry. Somebody can win the game. Jeez. Whoa. Well, when you're scoring one run a game, you better get a couple of really great starting pitchers. I don't know. Uh, maybe there's another Ron Guidry or Whitey Ford out there someplace. Oh, I um, love Whitey Ford. Yeah. Or Severino maybe can stay healthy. That should help. I don't know. You know what, though, Larry? To your point you made a few weeks ago, it's tougher this year because the whole darn division's really good. It's probably yeah. the best division in baseball, you know? Uh, there isn't a weak team in the division, so uh, it's going to be tough to make the playoffs, but I think we can do it. Well, I was, um, you know, unfortunately, I was watching Baltimore. They're a good team. Baltimore used to be a pushover. They're not anymore. Anyway, Jack Bruce, I know you're a commodities guy, but I think the big story today, the big story this past week and maybe longer in the stock market is NVIDIA and artificial intelligence and tech stocks. Tech stocks up 5.1% for the week of the S&P sectors. I know the overall Dow was uh, down 300-something, and interest rates have been going up. But it's all about AI, NVIDIA, and related companies and tech stocks, Jack Berusia. Now, this is the latest fad or what? It feels a lot like a fad, except for the fact that there is some substance behind it. You know, think of the dot-com bubble. We knew that there was some substance there. But you had a lot of companies that were trading at 200 times revenues, and, and, you know, they didn't last. So, you know, for me, it's probably creating another bubble scenario. Now, the the one thing I will say about AI, and, and this is something that people that are buying these stocks don't realize, is that it's probably the most disinflationary, disintermediating invention that is ever going to be created. You're going to end up putting 300 million people out of work with this thing, and people don't understand that. That's not how an economy grows. You know, yeah, so but... when, when people get all excited about this, I, I guess, you know, be careful what you ask for. Yeah, um, but you're, and... you're going to create 600 million new jobs. Well, you know, Schumpeterian, Schumpeterian gales of creative destruction. Come on. Uh, you, you, Modernity you know, not, not... is good. <laughs> it, it is. It is, except when you have automation and robotics, and and when you can when you can run a a fast food franchise restaurant with one or two people and have it cashless and and replace. 20 people, that tells you something right there. And that's exactly what's happening out in Europe when you go out there and you see what's happening. But, but this rally that's taking place is more than just AI. This is a, a market that's now being priced for nirvana. You, know, one of, you mentioned it about the tech stocks. If you take, and I just had this talk with somebody else, if you take 10 
tech stocks out of the equation, this stock market is flat. It's doing very little. In fact, it's lower on the year in many cases. Um, and, and that tells you how, how top-heavy it really is and what, what horrible breath we have in this rally. So, you know, and, and what that tells you is the flip side could be true. If this market turns, it's only going to take a handful of stocks to take it much lower. Michael Zanian, are you surprised to hear what a Luddite Jack Berugian is? <laughs> I am. I mean, coming from a fellow Armenian, I mean, we're the, uh, we're the only seeing the seeds out there of growth. Um, is... I went to play devil's advocate. You know, I, a lot of this, uh, not specifically what Jack was saying, but in general concerns you see about tech and uh, these companies taking away from jobs and all that, I do recall, you know, that was a big concern in the 80s and specifically the 90s. But uh, one of the things this economy is missing and why we're growing, you know, at less than 2% instead of, you know, 3.5%, which we averaged for many, many years since World War II, is the lack of productivity. And productivity is disinflationary, which is good. Um, And these jobs also... You know, it reminds me when all the naysayers were out there about Ronald Reagan's brilliant pebbles. And they were saying, you're never going to build a a defense shield. Well, one of the things they missed was all the tremendous technology that was spun off from that and and how it was used in the uh, non-defense economy. And I think a lot of that is going to come from this tech stuff. But I I agree with 100 percent of Jack's larger point, which is, there's no no breath in this stock market. In fact, uh, to parallel what Jack was saying, I saw a great headline the other day. It said the S and P 493 is up one percent here today. Jack was, you know, p- pointing out, and you know, I think it's seven stocks: Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, and and uh, one other w- w- are up 44 percent year to date. And the rest of the S&P are up 1%. So, yeah, but but that's not surprising because, you know, just going by overall earnings for the S&P 500, it's supposed to be up 1% this year, 1%. So, you know, it's, it's easy to see why there's no breath in this market because there's no earnings breath. Yeah, well, GDP profits are falling. Yeah. Last, last yeah. two quarters, GDP profits, that's the broadest measure, NIPA. National income account profits, uh, and we were talking in the earlier segment how gross domestic income overall in GDP is fallen for two straight quarters. So you got that. I forgot, by the way, Berujian and Ozanian. This is the Armenian Super Bowl today. I, I, I always forget that when you guys when you guys come on. God bless both of you, uh, Jack Berujian. What's the commodity story? It still looks very soft to me. I'm looking at the CRB and the Goldman Sachs. What do you think? It is. It, it, it is soft. And, and, I mean, look, and that's where you start to see some disinflationary pressures. It's one of the reasons why we're seeing stocks and bonds continue to send conflicting messages. We're seeing that, that inverted yield curve that's, that, that's stubborn, uh, you know, between the twos and the tens, between the, between the three month and the tens. And all of that is more than just this whole deal that, that, that's hanging over, which is all, you know, uh, you know a, a lot of BS, and we all know that. You know, but the reality is that those conflicting messages are really more a result 
of, of what you just described. Right? We're looking at a slowdown. This is a, a real slowdown, and that's why you are looking at commodity prices cooling off. And at the same time, unfortunately, you have Americans that are losing purchasing power parity. So it, this is a very unique situation in, in, in the life cycle of our economy right now, and it needs to be corrected. And a lot of it is because of policy mistakes that were made both by the Fed and by, by the legislature. Well, look, at it, interest rates are going back up again, which is very interesting. I mean, we will, we will extend the debt ceiling, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's kabuki theater, as Joe Lavornia said in the earlier segment. But your 10-year note is back to 380. That was as low as 330-something. Uh, two-year note, 456. Uh, 30-year mortgage is 715. Michael Zanian, um, interest rates going to pose another barrier to stocks? I think they're going to stay stubbornly high. I don't think they're going to climb. Um, I, I, and the big reason is, and I like to give credit for people who do the work, but our very good friend Donald Luskin, I thought, wrote a, a great op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this yeah. past week. Yeah. And, 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 and he pointed out with very specific numbers the changes in the money supply, and he pointed out that it had peaked at 27% growth year over year in February 2021. But he said over the past year, it shrunk by 4.68%. We're talking about M2, which I think is a solid measure to look at. And, and the reason, one of the reasons why I think he's on to something is because you look at gold and the dollar the past week. Gold went down. The dollar got stronger. Uh, so so I, I think that, you know, accelerating uh, inflation uh, is not going to happen because of M2. Uh, but I do think where it is now, you know, what, what is it, about 4.5% growth year over year or something like that, I think it's still too high, and it's going to be stubbornly high for a while. Well, look, Milton Friedman's M2 models would tell you we're heading for a deep recession, and we're also heading for lower inflation, Jack Bruger. I mean, that's, that's the class. I was trained as a monetarist in college, and that's basically what his model would tell you. Well, you know, having having sat next to, to both Merton Miller and Milton Friedman on the board of directors at the CME Group, I can absolutely guarantee you that's what they would have said. Yeah. Uh, and and both of them. And but but more importantly, I think that uh, you know they'd be probably scratching their heads, uh, you know, over the course of the last ten years between the the monetary policy and and the fiscal policy that's been out there. But you know, just just getting back to it, and I think one of the things that we want to pay attention to is is the fact that both VIX and gold are telling us another story. There is no fear in this market right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got a VIX under 18. You've got gold where that was bid up for a little bit, but it's not bid up to the point where people are afraid. So, so again, there, nobody seems to be afraid of what might happen yeah. in another six or eight months, even though people are talking the market down. It's one of the reasons we saw that giant rally on Friday. You know, you had people off sides, portfolio managers that realized it was going to be the last day for them to be able to buy stocks, and they'd have to report to their board of directors and, and, and answer why the market was now closing on the highest it's been in over six months, and they're in cash. So you had people running into equities. We saw it. You know, I mean, and everybody was talking about it. Now, now the question is, you know, is it sustainable? Uh, you know, I mean, again, you're looking at a market that is really struggling with these earnings. Let me come back to bond, <clears throat> bonds for a second, uh, Mike Ozanian. Would you buy bonds? Do you think interest rates have peaked? Boy, I'm not a big, big player in that area. Uh, you know, I prefer equities. I, I, I would not. I would not buy bonds. I think there's too much risk in there right now. I, I really wouldn't. 
Um, I think very selectively, you're better off with equities. I also I think the dollar is a good play right now. I, I, I really do. But I think uh, just to buttress what Jack said, you know, the forward price earnings ratio on the S and P 500 is 18. So Jack is hitting on something here where you look at the overall market and it's still not priced as though you could have, uh, you know, a significant downturn in the economy. Um, I think a lot of people are also saying, I know revenues are expected to increase 2.5% this year, but they're saying share buybacks could help a lot. But I, but I think that's a bit sort of risky to look at right now. I, uh, I, I'm not really buying that story that buybacks are going to get us up to high 1% single-digit growth in earnings. Joe Biden wants to tax share buybacks. Yeah, well, look, if there's one green shoot, it's, it's, it's if the House can make some headway, take one small step for mankind <laughs> in this budget thing, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a, a huge, huge step forward because – uh, as you have, as my boss Steve For- uh, Forbes has uh, pointed out, you know this this Supreme Court ruling, uh, you know, re- with in terms of water on your land. Yes, yes. If, if we can just pare back, forget a, forget about uh, getting some small victories with with Joe Biden. If we could pare back the regulatory tax, I call it. Yes, it, it, it would be huge. You know, there's a huge battle in Jersey right now where. Craft breweries are trying to get Governor Phil Murphy to pare back some of the regulations that are killing just all the craft breweries. I mean, you can't even sell a soft drink in a craft brewery. They regulate what music you could play in a craft brewery. I mean, these are the types of things that a lot of people, unless they operate a small business, are not aware of. You know, it's not on the news every day, but but they're owners for economic growth. And there's a market opening because no one's buying Budweiser. Whoops. Right. Whoops. We're going to leave that one there. Too hot to handle. Jack Perusian, Michael Zanian. We're going to come right back and get a good stock market outlook for both of them. I'm Kudlow. Stay with us, folks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Michael Zanian, assistant managing editor, Forbes Media, and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. Jack Perusian, what's your investment strategy? These days, I think I'm being very defensive. That's what I'm preaching, Larry. Uh, in fact, you know, I hate to take the other side of of, of my brother Armenian's other trade, but you know, I'd be I'd be long bonds here and and short equities. I call it my economy deterioration spread, unfortunately, <laughs> and that's and that's what I see over the course of the next few months, uh, primarily because of, of what's coming out, uh, you know, between. You know these various headwinds that the market is facing, and and one of the, those those black swan events that, that could take place. You know, it could be you know something that comes out of commercial real estate. It could be uh, something that comes out of uh, you know the, the community banking system. But something's out there, and it's one of the reasons that that the inverted yield curve is signaling what it's signaling, and that is that there is going to be a, a serious issue coming down the road here. So, you know. I, I've always said that bond markets are are smarter than stock markets because our bond traders have always been star, you know the, the stars to me, uh, and and that's why I'm not going to fade it this time because every time I've tried to fade it, I've been wrong. <laughs> All right, and um, Mike, you're, are you you're the reverse? Sell bonds, uh, yeah, I'm buy gonna, stocks. 
My, my thing is I, I'd rather uh, utilities have gotten crushed this year, uh, but as a contrarian play, I, I go with something like Dominion Energy, which is a utility. Now, you know, its earnings are going to be flat at around 365 a share this year and next year, but you can get a, a yield of 5.1%, which is, you know, just about it, you know, at the three-month treasury yield. So, you know, you got – Upside appreciation, and you also have with that a really nice two dollars and sixty-seven cents dividend. And again, I like the dollar because uh, I, I, I think that with the money supply getting crushed, I, I think you're going to see the value of the dollar go up. Uh, and uh, I, you know, those are two places where I put my money right now. If interest rates come down, let's go back to Milton Friedman's M2 scenario. If interest rates come down, will the dollar come down? I think the dollar had been so pushed, you know, crushed from inflation. I think that as inflation comes down, I think the dollar is going to get uh, much stronger. That's my play on this. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, again, to go back to Don's piece going over history, I think a lot of people have been focused on the Fed's move on interest rates. But I think the money supply and government spending, mm. you know, at the printing presses with that, I think those have been even bigger factors because we had long, long periods of, of monetary easing of easy money. And that seems to be changing. Well, it has changed. And I, I think that if we get out of this uh, printing of money and we get down to where we have a very stable M2 growth, I think that's going to be very good for the dollar. Yeah, it should be good for the economy, good for lower inflation. Jack Bruzian, abstracting from your Luddite views, the fact is NASDAQ has gone up five straight weeks. Does that end? Well, you know, I, look, the market could stay irrational for a long time, Larry. You know, you and I have seen it. You know, I mean, I, I watched it back in 99, and I scratched my head all the way on through. But, you know, the, I mean, the reality is that this, the, the market is reacting to what you know, Mike was just talking about, that it's cheap money that was existing for years and years. And, right. you know, the, the Fed took way too long. Instead of tapping the brakes, like those of us that live in, in cold-weather climates know that you do it in snow, they've been slamming the brakes for a year, and that's how you yeah, that's how you end, end up in a skid. All right. Thanks very much, Jack Bruzian, Mike Ozanian. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a break. On the other side, some money in politics with Liz Peek and with Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk some money and politics. We've got Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and his very fine radio show, More Money, which follows this broadcast on most of these very same stations. So welcome back to both of you. Um, before we get deep into politics, politics, I just want to... Um, Get your comments. Memorial Day weekend. This is about um, we are celebrating, reminiscing, praying, expressing our gratitude to the actual reasoning behind the holiday weekend, which is the men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives in wars in the U.S. military anywhere in the world. It started at the, right after the Civil War. U.S. Grant was the first president to celebrate a really large-scale 
Memorial Day. It became a national holiday in 1971. Uh, Liz, they, they made the ultimate sacrifice to protect American democracy and freedom and keeping us the greatest country in the history of history. And, you know, Liz, that's a sobering thought, but my thought on that sobering thought is I want to keep America that way. That's yeah. what I'm thinking about this Memorial Day weekend. I want to keep America that way. Well, I think you're not alone, Larry. And I think it was Tim Scott, maybe, who said, let's not just remember the fallen. Let's remember why they made that ultimate sacrifice. And I think that's really what we all should be thinking about. What were the virtues, the values of America that made millions of people go to war, not once, but several times, to support and defend our country? What is it about this country that instills and inspires that kind of courage and commitment, and I and I think a lot of us feel that we're beginning to lose sight of those values, lose our commitment to them. Nothing could be more important. Well, she's right, uh, Steve Moore. And you know, uh, looking at American politics today, I think there are forces on the left that don't care. They're not celebrating Memorial Day weekend. In fact, they're probably opposed to it. They don't understand why it's important to keep America the way America is, founded on the basic principles of freedom and democracy, Steve. I mean, I think that's an important theme. I want to keep it that way. <laughs> Me too, boy. And, you know, I, uh, my uh, grandfather fought in World War One, Larry, and my father fought in World War Two. Now, they did not pay the ultimate sacrifice, but, boy, did they sacrifice. My uh, grandfather lost his arm in World War One. And so uh, I, I've said this so many times. You and I have talked about slur. We need a new patriotism in this country. Yes. It should be one of the – and I want the presidential candidates. Uh, Tim Scott talked a bit about it. But every one of them should talk about the greatness of America and the importance of <laughs> making uh, sacrifices for the greatest country on earth. We have had these declinist periods, Liz, in the past, but we've snapped out of them. I mean, most notably, most, most notably – uh, the Reagan era snapped us out of a uh, declinist period. Now, we have been in a declinist period recently. Um, how hard is it going to be, in your judgment, to snap out of it? Well, oddly, I'm not sure that good times snap us out of it, Larry. I almost feel like we have to have some duress to make people kind of get back to basics and to talk about the things that are really important. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I'm really tired of talking about transgender bathrooms. I'm not sure that's really mm -hmm. the most critical issue facing this country. I think our contest with China is extremely important. I think, actually, I was thinking about this this morning when I was reading the Wall Street Journal editorial about uh, a decision in Illinois <clears throat> that will cost a lot of youngsters the opportunity to go to good schools. And they were talking about how in Illinois, 12% of black children are able to read at the normal level. 13% can do math. How is that not the most important issue facing America? If our future is going to be, be determined by coming generations, this is something all politicians should be talking about. This is all of us should be focused on this. I would love to see an election that actually begins to revolve around school choice, which, by the way, is making headway. I mean, I think parents across the country are incensed 
about what went on during COVID. They're determined to make a, a battle for their kids' future. But the future of our country is being undermined in our schools, not just by incompetence, but also by ideology. And, and we all see this happening. This, to me, you know, in terms of getting back on track, Larry, what could be more important than bringing our kids along with us? Mm. Hey, Steve, what the heck is wrong with Illinois? And by the way, <laughs> what, um, what, what, what's the outcome of this crazy governor of North Carolina? Uh, well, first of all, in Illinois, just to give you a sense of how bad things are, did you know that the, you know, the new population um, census numbers just came out last week? Did you know, you guys know Chicago has a lower population today than it did 100 years ago? Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing when you consider that the U.S. population has tripled. The same thing, by the way, has happened to almost all of the blue cities across America. People are leaving because of the factors that Liz mentioned, but also the, not just the terrible schools. That's a big problem, but also the high taxes, the crime, and so on. Um, then you've got this North Carolina governor who uh, basically was saying that uh, to have school choice for all uh, kids, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their income, would be like dropping an atom bomb on the public schools, which was interesting because he sent his kids to a private <laughs> school. So right. there's so much hypocrisy on the left. I mean, I could count to, you know, dozens and dozens of, governors and members of Congress and senators who sent their own kids to private schools, but they don't want low-income kids and and black and Hispanic kids to go to these schools. So there's a big hypocrisy factor here. And I couldn't agree with Liz more. I mean, it is, it is, this is the civil rights issue and the economic issue of our time. We cannot compete internationally against China and Japan and Mexico and all the other countries. If we have kids that can't read their diploma, it is, it is, that's how bad some of the schools have gotten. Well, and I think that, look, the battle writ large here on Memorial Day, you've got a left wing, which uh, under Joe Biden, at least temporarily, uh, has some additional authority, uh, additional authority and um, uh, additional power. I say temporarily, at least that may be more of a, of a hope than a promise, but whatever. Uh, there's cultural Marxism. There's economic Marxism. Uh, there's isolationism. Hello. Uh, there's no one. Uh, yeah, I can hear you, Steve, by the way. I don't know if you can hear us. Um, you know, while Steve gets straightened out, Liz, I mean, the left has probably got as much power now as they ever have that I can think of in the last hundred years. And that yeah, is not and, good. That is and not and good. by the way, it's not like their position, their their. Uh, representation in the country has exploded. It hasn't. I mean, it's still a very narrow segment of the population that describes themselves as very liberal. I think the number's like 7 or 8%. But, you know, I was looking at those CNN polls that were utterly disastrous that came out showing Joe Biden really, uh, I mean, just in terrible trouble in terms of approval and so forth. And uh, you know, you you can really thank Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden can thank Bernie Sanders for that, because remember, early on, he signed a deal with Bernie Sanders that he would basically adopt his agenda to get the Bernie bros on board with his election. And it worked. They did come out. They did vote for Joe Biden and they took over the White House. And I think, you know, nobody wanted that. Everyone was pretending that Joe Biden was a moderate. Sometimes sometimes still in the press, you see that. 
that, you know, he's a moderate Rep- Democrat. He, he is no such thing. And none of his uh, legislative acts would, would kind of go in that direction. So I think what's really been remarkable is we've had a near socialist government mm. and you see it everywhere. The amount of spending, the undermining of corporate authority and replacing it with executive authority uh, is pretty astonishing. We got to get I mean, honestly, Larry, whatever else, I don't care who the candidate is, we have got to get rid of Joe Biden because the takeover of his administration by the far left has been the most dangerous thing this country has faced in a long, long time. You know, that's an interesting point. They did sign. There was some document agreement. was, Was that before the election? I think it was. And Joe yeah. Biden sort of said, yes, you know, I do want your voters to vote for me. And I'm sorry, you're not the candidate. But here's yeah. what we'll do together, you know, and look mm. at the Green New Deal or Inflation Reduction Act. Excuse me. That is Bernie Sanders talking mm. and the American Rescue Act, two point one point nine trillion dollars. That is Bernie Sanders talking. This is not Joe Biden. And Steve Moore, are you back with us? Blank. Okay. Uh, let's take a break, and we'll sort of reconnect, Steve Moore. We're here with uh, Liz Peak, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. We'll get Steve Moore back. Steve Moore's more money on radio right after this show. I'm Kudlow. We'll come right back after this. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peak. Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and his great radio show, More Money, which follows this show. Um, I want to read uh, Kids uh, Politico headline, actually Politico magazine by Jonathan Martin. Are the anti-Trump GOP forces starting to implode? A mission control breakdown for DeSantis and smooth launch for Scott bode ill for those hoping to thwart the former president. Now, Steve Moore, the politics here are very interesting, what Jonathan Martin is saying. Uh, Tim Scott has a lot of support in the Senate. Now, John Thune came out and supported him publicly. But Scott is, in some sense, going to be the candidate of the party regulars, including Mitch McConnell, which damages DeSantis, who needs the party regulars uh, in addition to his Florida base, to unseat Trump. What do you think about that, the anti-Trump uh, forces starting to implode? Uh, look, Trump is just looking so strong. And, you know, I have to say, Larry, um, that given what has happened with the economy, and it looks like it's just, it's just you know, so stagnation is what we have. It's, it's basically just uh, stakeflation um, that is hurting American families. And you, when you get 75% of Americans who think the country is going in the wrong direction, they can look back at the Trump years. And uh, you've talked to uh, President Trump. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. I just said, look, stay on this message is, you know, are you better off than where you were four years ago? And three out of four Americans say they're worse off. And so I think Trump has a strong message. I, I think he has flaws as a candidate, no question about it. He is the, an incredibly polarizing figure and the kind of more moderate republicans will try to find anybody but trump but i'm not so sure right now we can find one now let me just say this about tim scott i love scott i think his message is fantastic i love the idea of having a a black american as the republican 
uh, presidential nominee. I'd love to see that. Uh, I think Ron DeSantis has clearly been the best governor in America. So we've got a great field right now. I mean, Vivek, Vivek is catching on with his kind of with young people. It's great to see, you know, an Indian American <laughs> running as a Republican. Yeah, so we yeah. are, you know, so I love our field. Who have they got? <laughs> actually, you, actually, just to be, you've got two Indian Americans. Yeah. Yeah, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. That's right. That's right. Liz, though, the the interesting part of this is that uh, Tim Scott, by the way, has got 20-something million in the bank, so that's a nice number. But he could be the candidate of the so-called regular Republicans in the Senate and that that would detract from what Ron DeSantis needs and that that helps Trump. It's an interesting political argument, Liz. What do you think? Um, I don't know how important what the regular senators think is, uh, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> <clears throat> That's very funny. <laughs> Sorry. It's probably detrimental to Tim Scott that he has all the senators behind him. Yeah, well, right. he, got, he got John Thune's endorsement. <laughs> well, a- actually, uh, honestly, Steve, what people are saying now about DeSantis is that having people like Carl Rowe, and other sort of moderate, what they call mm-hmm. rhino Republicans, uh, Jeb Bush, uh, George Bush funders and people like that supporting mm-hmm. DeSantis is really hurting him uh, in the eyes of, you know, Trump voters. So mm-hmm. it's a really complicated landscape. But I want to go back to what Steve said. We have a deep bench. They have no bench. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I honestly am beginning to think anybody can beat Joe Biden. And that is the most important thing. I didn't think Trump was going to be was in a position to do that because his unfavorables are so high. But guess what? Joe Biden's unfavorables are getting to about the same place. And if it is indeed a pocketbook recession, kitchen ta- I mean, election, kitchen table election, <clears throat> people are indeed going to say, well, wait a minute. Under Trump, my under Trump, my taxes were low. And by the way, no one's even talking about things like the fact that we've got a giant tax hike looking at us. Yes. Uh, you know, we need somebody in the White House that's yes. going to really stand up against that. You are. That's a key point. Liz. <laughs> it is. Right it is. In, in 2025, right after the election, the Trump tax cuts totally expire. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we need the message about how this is going to work for you. And I really don't think many Americans are going to think Joe Biden's message is the one that's going to work for them. Steve Moore, I do, the- worry, a li- I do worry a little bit about, if I, you know, as I look at the Democratic field. I mean, Gavin Newsom could be a very difficult candidate for Republicans. And he is, I don't know if either of you have met Gavin Newsom. He's, um, he's, a, he's kind of a Bill Clinton uh, in terms of his personality. He's a very charming guy, yeah. likable person. Although I think if you're running against Gavin Newsom, and I think there's a, you know, a, a decent chance that he could end up being the Democratic nominee. Yeah. I still think, I don't know what you guys think, I still don't think them, that, that they're going to put Joe Biden back on the stage again. And uh, so then it has to be about California. Do you want America yeah. like California? Yeah. And I think most Americans probably say, oh, no. <laughs> By the way, I know Gavin quite well. I agree with you. He's a charming guy. Um, in his heart of hearts, he's not as far left as California, but he's governed on the far left. And That's now true. he's that stuck in this crazy reparations debate. That's true. But look at, Steve, <clears throat> the, the problem with DeSantis is still, it is going to be a pocketbook election. Uh, he does not have, nor did he really message uh, on Wednesday, an economic agenda. This is the issue. I don't know. Let's just take what you said. 
He should contrast Florida with California. Yeah. He should contrast yeah. Florida with uh, yeah. New York. It's all yeah. there for him. Whether it's right. because of him or not, the reality is people are going from New York to Florida. And there's good reason for that on taxes and spending and economic growth. Yep. But yep. he doesn't get there. He just doesn't get there. And when he does mention the economy, it's like the fifth thing. And I don't understand how his advisors are uh, ignoring the need uh, to show that he could be a good steward of the economy. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think his strongest case is that Florida is right now basically the the fastest growing state in the country. Everybody wants to move there. You've got, you know, it's it, he won Hispanic votes. He won Asian votes. He won every, everyone's votes in a state that used to be a purple state. Now he has turned it into a red state. So he should talk about all the economic development in Florida and say, we can bring this Florida out. Wait. Liz, you got to go in there and kick some butt inside his campaign. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You do. I know. I I do think that they're sort of missing a bet there. Actually, I almost never quote Peggy Noonan, but today she has a column out talking about Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis, and she makes, I think, some very good points about DeSantis. One is that he should own his faults. In other words, people talk about him being awkward, charmless, etc., and he can turn that into a virtue. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, I won by an overwhelming margin. It was probably my charm. And as she says, people are going to say, well, actually, obviously, that's not true. So why did he win? Well, because he's smart, he's capable, he's a good manager, et cetera. I, I, think, I think that campaign needs to get more sophisticated. They need more people weighing in. Number one should be the economy, and he's got great data to back him up. Uh, and I do think he, you know, he can kind of leave Disney behind and talk about taxes, talk about you know, a favorable environment for growing a business because, gosh, hundreds of thousands of people in New York, in Illinois, in California, and all these red state, uh, blue states are looking at that and saying, I wish I had a business in Florida. That's what I want to do. You know, Steve, uh, DeSantis has too many donors and not enough supply siders. <laughs> Well, Larry, we're going to do a dinner yeah, up in New York like we did in 2016 with all the candidates. And, and DeSantis has said, you know, he wants to do it. And we're going to have, you know, we're going to have our committee to unleash prosperity. Uh, you know, we're going to have you're going to love this. You know, who we're going to get next month. Robert F. Kennedy. Who? who? Kennedy. Uh, Bobby Kennedy. I mean, Bob Kennedy, Jr. Yes. Oh, oh. That'd do be I, interesting. Do I have to go yeah. to that one? <laughs> yes, you do. I want to hear what the guy has to say. I mean, you know, the one thing he was right on was COVID lockdowns. Yes, yes. You know, he was, was against them, and he was yes. right. But anyway, so, yeah, look, I can't wait to see when DeSantis comes in, and you and me and Art Laffer and Steve Forbes and Liz, we hope you're there. We really need to drill them on the, on the supply-side message and the Reagan message of, of growth, because you're right. It's sort of missing. It's like an after in his, his speeches. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. He must think that primary voters are not going to be as swayed by that as they are by some of his other things, like his battle against Disney. Yeah, well, I think that's a miscalculation. I really I think do. so, too. I think that's a miscalculation. Um, is Tim Scott destined to be vice presidential candidate, <laughs> or has he got a shot at actually winning the whole nomination, Steve Moore? 
he's got an outside shot. He could be. He'd be a great. He would be a great, great vice presidential candidate. But of course, my vice presidential candidate is Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, who is a superstar. Oh wow, she is a superstar. And Liz, uh, are you still fighting hard for Chris Christie and the Judge Washington <laughs> Bridge? <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, the, the uh, <clears throat> chutzpah of this guy, who I blame for Trump's loss. I actually put this at Chris Christie's door. Why? Because he was the guy that convinced him to be a bully and a bore in that first debate. Yes. And he lost the election that yes. night, in my view. All right, kids. Thanks very much, Liz. Peace. Steve Moore.